Good evening, and welcome to Dreary December episode two. Uh, my name is Lisa, my pronouns are she, they. My name is Celeste, my pronouns are she, her. And uh, I'm back this time. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, again, Dreary December, if you missed last week, Dreary December, we're posting weekly in December two researched episodes and two real spooky stories episodes. Uh, so hopefully you enjoyed that uh, very first bonus episode uh tis the season and so tonight it's my lead episode yes and today we are talking about um winter holiday traditions specifically connected to the longest night so let's get into it So, uh, currently, we're at the darkest time of the year. And yes, we are. It is very dark. <laughs> yes. Uh, and as we're recording it, it's December the 10th, so we're not even at the darkest time of the year yet. No, oh my god. Yeah. So, uh, there's a lot of different legends and traditions uh, for this time of year. A lot of myth about what happened to the sun or the light or whatever, which often adapt based on cultural circumstances like Christianity. And so there's two recurring themes in stories that I saw. One theme is the sun is gone. Where did it go? And the other theme is kind of everything is dark. So now we have to bring light in some other way. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you were raised Christian, right? Yes. I was also raised Christian. Uh, celebrate Christmas, all that. Yep. Yep. Twas, twas a magical time. Still is, in yes. my opinion. Yeah. Uh, currently, I think we are still in the season of Advent. But a lot of uh, Christmas traditions are adapted from Roman traditions. Roman Catholics, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the main ones are uh, Saturnalia, Dies Natalis Solis Invictus, slash the cult of Mithras. The Dies Natalis Solis Invictus uh, means birthday of the unconquered sun. Sun as in in the sky. okay. (laughs) But, I mean, a lot of early Christian writers also said, sun with a U, but also sun with an O. (laughs) Sol Invictus, uh, the festival was on December 25th of the Roman calendar, which, according to Roman calendrics, was the winter solstice. Yeah. Uh, So, longest night of the year. It was mostly celebrated by feasting. And was celebrated just after Saturnalia, which is sort of a seven-day end-of-year celebration uh, from, according to Roman calendrics, December 17th through the 23rd. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of, like, gambling and role, re- role reversal during this time. Oh. So uh, sometimes if you have enslaved people, uh, the owners are serving the enslaved people, the enslaved oh. people are having the feast. And sometimes they do yeah. it all together and that kind of thing. A uh, gifting sort of season. If you're going to pick a singular day to give gifts, it's likely to be on Sigillara, which is the 19th. It's not, it's sort of like... The 19th yeah. of December? Yeah. Uh, you're, you were nine days early with your gift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's not required to give gifts just on Sigillara, but if okay. you're going to do it, that's when it will happen. Got it. And it's 
yeah, it's sort of a week-long festival uh, and a lot of Christian tradition specifically because a lot of uh, these cults were coming up and being widespread in like 2nd, 3rd, 4th century AD. uh, Also when Christianity was starting to pick up, so. Okay. Yeah. And there's another one, um, which I really could do a full episode (laughs) on. Which was the cult of Mithras. Which Yes, I'm yeah. interested in that. Please explain. <laughs> yes. So uh, Mithras is a lot. Um, according to HellenicFaith.com, Mithras, according also known as the rock-born god, is the savior god of the light, tr- truth, oaths, integrity, and covenants. He is a guardian solar deity who presides over a path for the perfection of the soul and is the companion of Zeus Helios. So, again, that's HellenicFaith.com. And his cults are spread basically all over the Roman Empire, as far east as Turkey and as far west as London. Oh, wow. um, That's a big span. Because because that's as wide as the Roman Empire was. Istanbul yeah. to, oh, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> yes. Istanbul to London, or Hadrian's Wall. But I have this because I went to the London Mithraeum uh-huh. in 2019. Oh, uh-huh, cool. Um, and so the temples are called Mithraea. And there is another uh, Persian god that's sort of like a corollary slash adaptation slash maybe the same thing with the same name spread over wherever uh, called... Mitra? Mitra? It's a Persian deity connected with contract. This is also how we get as far east as Turkey. But um, this book is called The Roman Cult of Mithras, The God and His Mysteries. Page three. It is convenient to term the Persian Persian and Hellenistic deity Mitra to distinguish him from the god of the Roman mystery cult. Mitra was an ancient Indo-European divinity, a member of a pantheon, which can be reconstructed by means of evidence from North India and Iran. The earliest document to name the god dates from the second millennium BC on a 14th century clay tablet from Bulgazkoy in modern Turkey, uh, former capital of the Hittite empire. Um, Mitra is invoked as a guarantor of an agreement between the Hittites and a neighboring people. Okay. And so that's kind of where you get the the contracts element of it. Um, so it was, so that's sort of the Zoroastrian element of it. Um, Mitra, also in the Zoroastrian system, uh, Mitra is the light that brings good, forever battling with darkness. It is Mitra who serves, who strives against evil spirits and puts them to flight. And so that's sort of like the predecessor slash contemporary, and then Mithras comes out of that in the Roman Roman element of it, okay. and then Christianity comes out of that. Got it. <laughs> okay. Um. So Mithraic mysteries don't really have public ri- uh, rituals. That's why we're called they're called mysteries. When I was trying to pull stuff up for this, it kind of reminded me of Masons, yeah. where it's like you can talk a little bit about. Like, the kind of things that you're trying to do. But you can't actually talk about the rituals that go on. Again, according to this Mithraic Mysteries book, or the Roman cult of Mithras, on page 14 this time. In the ancient world, the term mysteries were was used to refer to secret cults throughout the period from 7th century BC, so the 600s, uh, to the 4th century AD, so the 300s. All share two basic features. One is the injunction to silence intended to prohibit ritual details from reaching the outside world and the promise of salvation to initiates. 
The mystery cults were voluntary associations of believers. Anyone who wished to join and fulfilled the requirements necessary to membership might be admitted wherever he or she came from and whatever his or her social status, though social status did not simply cease to count. Such cults, uh, and here they differed from, from uh, Christianity, were generally not exclusive. Becoming a member of such an association did not preclude taking part in official public cults, whether state or civic, or initiation into other mysteries. There was no difficulty about being able to accept new religious ideas while continuing to believe in old ones. Okay. So there's a lot of, so like with Christianity, a lot of times it's like, it's the one true God and mm-hmm. you can't accept salvation unless you do our rituals and our everything. But in a lot of Roman cults at the time, Roman religious organizations, you can go to the Mithraeum and then you can go to the Apollonian or I don't know if that's an actual thing. You can do the Mithra, you can worship Mithras, you can also worship a different deity. Yeah. Um, and I can, again, I can get into um, Mithras <laughs> in general because, like, because it's a mystery cult, it's very much, like, it, we don't know for sure. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of, like, bull symbolism, um, either because he was like, sort of, like, born out of the Zodiac or because he's associated with... Uh, he's a solar deity, and bulls are apparently um, consistent with Selene, who is a uh, moon deity. Oh, so it's sort of a, maybe like, one is battling the other. Um, or like a yin-yang type thing. Perhaps, yeah. Selene shows up in a lot of uh, Mithraean temples. But point being, there is a feast and a gathering point on December 25th, specifically ah. to worship Mithras. And uh, who do we else do we know who has a mass and feast day on December the 25th? My man, Jesus. <laughs> exactly. My main boy. <laughs> I was going to say, there was, what was it? J-Man J- and the boys? Like Jesus and, the, Jesus and his disciples? <laughs> his apostles? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Ayo. <laughs> anyway. Um, that's what I found initially for a lot of, like, Christmas crossover with mm-hmm. other things. The culture in which you were born has an effect regardless of what that culture is and how far you try and get away from it. Yeah. Because, again, it's a time of, like, gathering points and bringing light. And I wasn't able to find the link. If I do, I'll put it in the show notes. I do think there was, like, a, a Roman writer who was writing about the various sun gods that have uh feast days around saturnalia and like a lot of the rituals like let's gather and feast and sometimes do animal sacrifice to uh bring back the sun god and the unconquered sun god and yeah uh more unconquers one one more sun god unconquering than jesus when you don't have the sun you want the sun <laughs> to come back. Yes. Please. We want to have this day for you. Yeah. Bring back the sun. <laughs> yeah. But a, but a lot of that is the, like, when you don't have the sun with a U, you might want the sun with an O kind of thing, except a play on words in Latin. You know instead. who else is the sun? Mm. Jesus. Yes. Jesus the sun. <laughs> the sun and also the sun. The sun and the sun. <laughs> which one has the U and which one has the O? It's up to you. <laughs> Um, 
So those are sort of the origins of uh, Christian rituals for the mass day being on the 25th. Okay. There is one other tradition that I kind of want to touch on because it's bonkers. Oh. <laughs> um, well, the origin is bonkers because saints are... How people get sanctified is wild. So... <laughs> At least I'm to me, giggling a because I know this. <laughs> <laughs> At least to me, uh, who was never raised Catholic. Yeah. Um, so, what do you know about Saint Lucia? Saint Lucia. Lucia or Saint Lucia? Lucia or Lucy? What's what uh, country is she from? Uh, she's from Sicily, martyred in 304 AD. Um, I don't know if I know her by name, but if you tell me her story, I might know yeah. her. Did you ever read American Girl as a kid? No. Okay, never mind. No, um, but I know that that was a popular thing. Okay, so this, for all of us who really loved Kirsten, um, this is going <laughs> to be really familiar. Um, oh, what happens, Kirsten? So, Kirsten, <laughs> I guess we're going to go on a... Um, uh, American Girl tangent here. So Kirsten, um... Is there anybody in our audience who wouldn't know what American Girl is? I don't know. It's like the series of books slash dolls yeah. that were just about a particular girl in a particular time period. Yes. And so when we were growing up, my dad and I read like all of the, what I would call the originals, um, because there have been more editions since oh, then. Yes. Um, Don't they have like a 90s yes. right now? <laughs> Which is like wild. A, yeah. So I sort of aged out of it right when they added a girl from the War of 1812. I think her name was Rebecca. Okay. Um, but so it's different little times and place in history. So uh, there was Felicity, who was like the American Revolution. Oh, and I hear you, about Felicity a lot. Yeah. Addie literally escaped slavery. And Molly was World War II. Oh, yeah. And so that kind of thing. And so there was always this format of it's like meet Molly, meet Josefina, meet whoever. Got it. Uh, and then it was so and so learns a lesson. And then it was happy holidays. There's like, so it's basically it's a year in the life. Um, yeah. It's one of their, like you meet in late summer, then it's you learn a lesson in the fall, you do your holidays in the winter. Yeah. Got it. Um, there's always some sort See, of early spring thing. Um, I, I didn't do American Girl dolls, American Girl um, books, but there was this one uh, book series that I read. Well, there was only one in particular. I'm trying to look it up right now. It was, but I know the one that I read was about the Transcontinental Railroad. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but it was like diaries of oh, like these... the Dear America. Yeah, I read yeah. Dear America books. Yeah. <laughs> I did that a little bit as well. Uh, but all right, so point being, Kirsten was an immigrant from uh, I think it was Sweden in uh, sort of post Civil War pre Industrial Revolution time frame, and so they immigrate uh, from Scandinavia to the U.S. Okay. And their holiday tradition one was sort of, how do we adapt in this uh, new environment uh, while we're on the farm and so on and so on. And so and so all of that to say, St. Lucia, Lucia, is uh, the uh, festivals are one thing and the matter of martyrdom is entirely another. Okay. So the festival, the St. Lucia's Day Festival of Lights oh. is... Again, it falls into the category of the sun is gone, so we must bring light. And it's celebrated uh, on December 13th, so uh, tomorrow when this posts, uh, which is close <laughs> to the winter solstice. 
And uh, according to Britannica, uh, St. Lucia was a Christian saint who was killed by the Romans in 304 CE because of her religious beliefs. It is said that St. Lucia took food to persecuted Christians in hiding, wearing candles on her head to light her way so she could have both hands free. In Sweden, this tradition is upheld as the start of the Christmas season. Uh, Local and national Lucias are chosen to lead processions of children with candles and song. Uh, Young girls dressed in white wear wreaths of candles on their heads and often distribute baked goods such as uh, lusikater, which is like a saffron bun with uh, little raisins. And the raisins look like eyes because... She got her eyes poked out. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I do know this girl. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so there's sort of two stories about her torture and eventual death. Both of them start because she converted to Christianity and wanted to dedicate her body to Christianity as well. She wanted to stay a virgin, uh, dedicate to God. I don't know if they have nuns, uh, nunneries back then, but Probably. presumably they yes. didn't. I don't know. Either way, it's that kind of energy, even if they didn't have it. And so, according to Wikipedia, the oldest record of her story comes from uh, Acts of the Martyrs from the 5th century. And, uh, again, executed 304 AD. One story says uh, her fiancé finds out that she wants to remain a virgin. And the torture is forcing her to work in a brothel and then burning her at the stake burning at the stake doesn't work so she gets stabbed in the neck imagine being burned the stake and you don't die that sucks that would be the worst and then the other is at least until the 15th century another story is that lucia was tortured by uh eye gouging because of this they the way she was sort of sanctified later is that when she was starting to get buried her eyes had grown back in Mm -hmm. and like oh my goodness it's a miracle and uh so now she's the uh, patrons say uh, people with eye conditions. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense. Yes. Um, Does she is she portrayed with having a platter with eyes on it? Yep. Yeah. But two things. Yeah. About Saint Lucy, in Latin, light is yep. is Luke's. yes, Luke's. Um, yeah. you know, and like in uh, Spanish, it's Luce. Yeah. So that's is i don't know if that it was she named for light or like Um, afterwards or was it just a happy coincidence i think a little bit of both yeah i think a little bit of both and because i have to assume that the word for light predates her presumably so yeah secondly did i tell you that i wanted to be a martyr when i was a kid no oh my god (laughs) okay do tell okay here's the thing okay so i'm gonna make a tangent slightly shorter but okay. in fifth grade we had like a overly zealous um teacher i went to catholic school catholic elementary okay. school yeah but in fifth grade we had like an overly zealous teacher who taught us about a lot of things that we probably shouldn't have been taught about one of them including martyrs okay and like graphic details about how these martyrs died we were 10 um so holy shit (laughs) oh yeah yeah she only lasted there like a year before she got like the 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 parents complained and she got fired or she quit i don't remember but the point is during that year that i had her she taught us a lot about martyrs and martyrdom and i was thinking because i was 10 i wasn't thinking like physical pain i was just thinking like wow 
if you die in Jesus's name, you get to go to heaven right away. <laughs> you don't have to worry about going to hell or going to purgatory. You just go straight up to heaven. So I, I, I want to be a martyr. Like I can just get my yeah. head chopped off and, <laughs> oh and go straight to heaven. Yeah. Obviously, I was 10 years old, so I wasn't thinking about yeah. the actual like torture methods that were being implemented. Um, and I, I have since rescinded my um, <laughs> desire <laughs> yeah. to be a martyr. But, okay. but that's, uh, uh, that's interesting how I know for a 10-year-old. about yeah. St. Lucy and all those okay. people because I had a, um, a teacher who probably shouldn't have been teaching <laughs> when <laughs> I was fair. 10 years old. <laughs> yeah. So, others like cool tangent while we're tangenting. Um, so, again, I've been to the London Mithraeum, which is, <laughs> which was only found by coincidence in World War II, because it is in, now is what is in the city of London. Um, and in the wake of World War II and a lot of the bombings that happened on London, that's how they found the Mithraeum. Oh, that the Mithraeum was there is because... Uh, the bombs. Yeah. And, exposed it. Yeah. The difficulty with that is that archaeology is an inherently destructive science, right? Always a little bit hate some of the older yeah. uh, archaeologists because one of them literally threw Troy out in the trash. Um, because, and like, the more you go down, uh, sort of into the underground, the farther underground you go, and the more strata you uncover, the, old, the farther back in time you're going. Bombings? Fuck that up. <laughs> um, because yeah. it's like it's this one spot that gets displaced and then everything else gets displaced out of around, it because yeah. around that so it's uh really hard to date a lot of that because yes of all of the destruction um but one of the really cool things and i'm gonna send you these photos after we record one of the coolest parts of it was that we went you go downstairs and what you the layers that you saw in the little um mm-hmm. In the, in the brochure, uh, we'll tell you, okay, okay, this strata tends to be around 1506. This strata tends to be around this year. Got it. Year. And if you uh, swipe, I think, two to the right, um, yeah. the one with the lights doing the, the sort of shimmering lights kind of created the walls, which is really, really cool. Um, and they had, uh, based on other Mithraea that we have and that we know about, they've sort of reconstructed what it might have looked like. That's cool. Um, they also played this uh, Latin chant I, that definitely didn't make me think we were about to get human sacrificed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if yeah. you're underground uh, and a Latin chant starts playing, I would also think I'm going to get human sacrificed. <laughs> I would be like, is it my time to become a martyr? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my day has finally yeah. come. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was really, really cool. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So. so uh, last back to Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And holiday traditions overall. Winter. Yeah. Winter stuff. Winter Winter traditions. Yeah. St. Lucia's Day celebrated in Scandinavia by young girls um, wearing wreaths on their head and baking little saffron cakes that are kind of like a figure eight with raisins on either side because it looks like eyes. I want to celebrate that. Can we do that? Can we make wreaths and make saffron cakes? Uh, Let's meet up on Wednesday and make the thing. (laughs) (laughs) So... Actually, those are all of the main traditions that I have. There's a few overall stories um, or overall themes for stories, one of which we're going to read on Patreon. Um, (laughs) And so there's a few different stories from around the world that 
answer the question, what is the sun and why is it gone? Uh, the sun with a U. Um, <laughs> so according to Inuit tradition, Ooh. Uh, a magician stole the sun and Raven stole it back. Uh, according to Orissa tradition, which is in uh, the Indian subcontinent, sunlight is part of a cow and it's milk and it's ah. theme in a thief that is somehow outside the known universe uh, steals the cow. Um, okay. And then according to Thuria tradition, which is sort of a subgroup of the Orissa, the, a kite, the bird kite, uh, steals somebody's very shiny earring. Um, ah, wait, where is that regionally in the world? It's on sort of the Indian subcontinent. Got it. Um, it is... Yeah, and so the Orissa borrow a lot from their Hindu neighbors. Um, Got and it. the Hindus borrow a lot from them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so um, the sun cow and the thief is... The Hindu tell the story of Surya, the sun god, um, born from the heavenly cow. Um, and according to this book, The Return of Light by Carolyn McVicker Edwards... Um, the Hindi word for cow also means ray of dawn or ray of spiritual illumination. Ah. So, um, yeah. That's so fun. usually the question of where is the sun, um, what is the sun and why is it gone uh, is answered in a whole bunch of different ways. A whole host of ways. Yes. Um, which one do you want to hear on Patreon? Oh, I have a choice. Okay. Who? How long are the, how long is that? Uh, there are only a couple pages each. Okay. It was the the thief of the sun, yeah. the the jewelry and the what was the third? Um one? so Oh, the Inuit one. Yeah, so the Inuit is a magician steals the sun and Raven steals it back. I want to hear um the Inuit one right now. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll do a different one on Patreon. Yes. All right. So again, this is from The Return of the Light, 12 Tales from Around the World for the Winter Solstice by Carolyn McVicker Edwards. Nice. And this one, I'm going to read the little cultural lead up that she does as well, because it's important and it's cool. Um, I didn't even think about like in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. How those so, people would be way more affected. Yeah. Right. Than, by the sun's absence than those in like, I don't know, the Mediterranean regions. Right. 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 So a little cultural bit that she does. Edgar Allan Poe's Raven. A messenger between the worlds of the souring poet and his lost Lenore sat on the head of the Roman goddess of wisdom and croaked, Nevermore! <laughs> the Inuit trickster Raven also bridges worlds, but he is as comforting as Poe's Raven is dreadful. The Inuit Raven's lusty appetites and wily, and wily loyalties are the very antidotes to Poe's midnight in December. The largest member of the Crow family, the Raven, is bold, gregarious, and intelligent. At home in high mountains, northern forests, rocky sea coasts, and treeless tundra, with a song that ranges from screams to whispers, the raven is a spectacular, long-winded flyer who can solve puzzles and imitate other animal sounds, and who often mates for life. Both okay. father and mother ravens feed their young. Inuit is the collective name for the many far northern tribal peoples of Greenland, Alaska, northern Canada, and the islands between. In wintertime, uh, the Inuit, despite today's conveniences, uh... Uh, ready-made tools and electricity face <laughs> hours of darkness, gales, and dense fog. This story in many versions is a staple of the storyteller's comf comforting winter repertoires. And this is titled, Raven Steals the Light. 
In the time before Raven made the stars, and before Tupelok stole the moon and the sun, everyone lived on this side of the sky. Tupelok was a magician with a high cone hat and shoes that allowed him to walk miles in a single step. Raven lived in his cozy snow hut at the edge of the village. One harsh winter, when the snow froze in the very earth, Tupelok put on his high cone hat and his magic shoes. He walked up to the sky and used his power to cut a hole in it. Then he climbed through and built himself a house on the other side. His wife argued with him. What are you doing? All of our friends are on this side of the sky. If we live on the other side, we will be completely alone. No. You can go back and visit, he assures her. <laughs> I don't Jeez. want to visit. <laughs> I want to be here right next to everyone and everything. I don't want to live alone. What do you mean, live alone, said Tupelok. You'll be living with me, and we'll have children, and the whole thing will be much more comfortable. Why, everyone else will want to visit you. But no one has your magic, Tupelok. They won't be able to come. Mm. Probably some of them do, he said, and persisted in his plan. He carried from the first world all his magical tools. His wife, sighing with resignation, carried a stash of frozen seal meat. Such like a man to not (laughs) listen to (laughs) his wife. Yeah. After they had settled as best they could, and had even had a beautiful daughter, Tupelok could see his wife was still sad and dissatisfied. In order to please her, he decided to steal the light. He climbed back through the hole in the sky and walked in his magic shoes straight to the top of the sky. Then into each of two strong bags, wrapping the necks of the bags tight with sinew rope, he crammed the moon and the sun. He pushed the bags back through the hole and hooked them high on the ceiling of his house, letting out the light only when he chose to do so. Now, the world on this side of the sky had no light at all. Because Raven loved to sleep, he hardly noticed at first. Whenever he awoke and saw that it was still dark, he snuggled back into his black feathered coat and slept again. He dreamed of steaming globs of fat, of collecting bright new treasures, and of turning breathtaking somersaults. But the people on this side of the sky were puny and tired with the lack of light and food. They Mm -hmm. didn't even have the strength to wonder anymore where Tupelok and his wife had gone. Finally, the people came to Raven and called weakly at his door. His dreams interrupted, Raven immediately thought of Tupelok. He picked his way through his horde of the shiny things he'd already found and poked out his head. (laughs) Raven, the sun never comes out anymore. And there's no moon either. We're running out of food. Oh, yeah. Raven heard the despair in their voices. I'll bet Tupelok's behind all this, he muttered. Out loud, he promised the people that he would try to find the sun. And the moon, too, they said. The moon, too, he assured, <laughs> he assured them. A pretty puzzle, thought Raven. This is going to be a long journey. So he took as big a bag of food as he could carry, and in another bag, several good-sized rocks. Then, increasingly roused at the idea of outwitting Tupelok, Raven pulled down his beak, drew on his black-winged coat, and soared into the freezing night sky. Whenever he needed to rest, Raven dropped a rock from his pack into the endless dark waters below. The rock changed Kaplash into an island on which Raven could perch, gobbling down suppers huddled in his warm feather coat until he was ready to fly again. Finally, he came to the hole in the sky made by Tupelok's magic. When Raven stepped through, he found himself dazzled by the sunlight on the other side of the hole, for Tupelok had let the sun out of its bag for the day. The sky was blue, a pool of water glistened, and plants poked green, red, and pink from the brown earth. Raven saw Tupelok in the distance, unmistakable in his high cone hat, soaking up the yellow heat. 
Raven coughed, and Tublok squinted. Is that you, Raven? He called. None other, said Raven. What do you want? said Tupelok. The sun and the moon. Tupelok laughed. Not a chance, Raven. They're mine now. You're a thief, said Raven cal- calmly. Takes one to know one, grinned Tupelok, and he stuffed the sun back into its bag. I'm going to get them back, Tupelok, yelled Raven into the darkness. Tupelok let out the moon and the sun several times while Raven, munching and dozing, cast about with one idea and then another trying to form a plan. Then, in the midst of the sunshine, Raven was startled by the appearance of a strong, round, lovely-cheeked maiden making her way down to the pool with a water jug in her hand. Could be this be Tupelok's wife? Could she possibly have grown younger in all this light? Ah, uh, no. Oh. It must be their daughter. In fact, she carried herself with the confidence of a magician's child. Raven blinked. All at once, he knew his trick. He quickly balled up his black twin coat squashed it under a rock and turned himself into a tiny feather floating on the still pool. Tupelok's daughter sat dreamily at the pool's edge. Ravenfeather trembled with expectation. He had a long time to wait, however, because the young woman sang softly to herself, bathed her feet and face in the pool, and then, musing and sighing, combed out her long black hair. But she dipped her jug and Raven swirled himself inside it. His heart leapt with the perfection of the moment when the woman took from its lip a deep quaff before beginning her walk home. Raven Feather slipped down her throat. His plan was working. Sometime later, Tupelok's daughter gave birth to a huge baby boy whose mother, grandmother, and grandfather were all joyed, all overjoyed. All the pent-up tenderness of these three, alone for so long on the other side of the sky, they poured into the new little boy, who, unbeknownst to them, was Raven in disguise. His mother nursed him and played with him. His grandmother doted on him. Tupelok adored him. Raven, inside his baby form, was careful to cry and pester for lots of things so that his little family would get used to giving him exactly what he wanted. Mm-hmm. He bided his time, however, before he asked for the bags of light that hung from the ceiling. One day... His mother noticed a bump on the baby's forehead. Ooh, you've fallen, little one, she crooned, and she nuzzled him and pressed ice to the bump. But Raven knew that his beak was beginning to bulge and that he didn't have much more time. Very soon after, he cried for the moon bag on the ceiling. Shh, baby, shh, that's grandpa's bag, said his mother, and she dandled tasty morsels before him. Raven, of course, ate them ravenously. Pleased that her child was eating so well, she bounced him on her knee, calling forth raucous laughter from her round little boy. But soon again, he began to wail, waving his chubby little hands upwards, pouring out the, pouring out rivers of tears. This time, his grandma fed him, changed him, and played the bouncing game. But he, always, his sobbing began again, his mouth gasping for air between the heaves of his chest, his little finger pointing at the bag with the moon inside. Papa's out, said Tupelok's daughter to her mother. Let's let him have it. What can it hurt? It's tied tightly enough. Tupelok's wife rolled her eyes. It would serve him right anyway if the thing gets out. If the thing got out. (laughs) So, Raven, hiccuping with joy, was given the moon bag to play with. In seconds, the little boy's face looked round and placid as the moon itself. His mother and grandmother rocked back on their heels, enjoying the sweet silence and the happiness of the little seal pup. The minute their attention wandered, however, Raven unknotted the sinew shore. Hang on. Mm-hmm. 
The minute their attention wandered, however, Raven unknotted the sinew, sure as if he had beak and claws, clapping and screeching as the moon sailed out, bouncing through the smoke hole like a ball of blubber. Tupelak came rushing back to the house when he saw the moon rolling through the tear in the sky. Who touched my bag? He bellowed, but stopped short when his wife and daughter pointed to the baby, who had ceased his chortling laugh long enough to emit a shriek of joy upon seeing his grandfather. Dada, he called, and reached for Tupelok's old spotted hand. Tupelok's face softened like a long-cooked stew. The baby <laughs> cooed and patted his grandfather, while Tupelok be- beamed with pride. The two women looked at each other and shook their heads. Raven wisely waited before he cried for the sunbag to play with. Then, when Tupelok had settled snoring into a nap, he began his earnest howling, waving his hands as if trying to pull down the sunbag. Tupelok woke up. Woke up. Oh, give him anything he wants. Just shut him up. <laughs> because this is the middle of a nap, and apparently Tupelok's naps are the only important naps. <laughs> um, the two women shrugged and pulled down the bag. They each, with tooth and muscle, wrapped and knotted the sinew twice more. Their closure was so affected that Raven this time could not open the bag. Knowing he must act act quickly, he rested regretful eyes for a moment on his mama's back and then sped, bag and fist, out the door. <gasps> he raced to his rock and donned the black-winged cape he hidden underneath so long before. His beak plunged through his forehead, and Raven took bird form once again. Grasping the sun bag first in his beak, then in claws, he dove through the hole in the sky and streaked away to the people whose eyes had grown accustomed once again to the light of the moon, who, but who still lived without the light of the sun. Raven felt hunger pangs as he flew. Once he flapped, but his stomach growled for food. By the time Raven spied the people below fishing in the crooked river by the light of the moon, his wings were trembling with effort. Gaga! Croaked <laughs> Raven weakly. Give me some fish! Get your own fish, Raven, said the people. We hardly have enough for ourselves. Please, begged Raven. I'll let out the daylight. You don't have daylight, Raven, said the people. Forgetting- They're the ones that sent him. <laughs> uh, forgetting that they themselves have asked oh, him to bring the sun. Got it. <laughs> um, Raven called with exasperation. He dropped the sun bag and with his remaining strength, rammed at it three times, pegging it in tiny holes, uh, out of which siz- sizzled particles of the sun, tumbling into the sky as sparkling spinning stars. He does have something in his bag, exclaimed the people. They rushed to ply Raven with fish. Raven gorged and sucked every bone slick. Then, full of power, he tore open the bag. Out exploded the sun, while people screamed and covered their eyes. In a very short time, <laughs> Those were... people got blinded. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're right up by the sun, I yeah. know, that's why. Yeah. Um, Rip. Yep. Yep. <laughs> in a very short time, they were able to bear against the stupendous light and gratefully prepared for Raven an enormous and delectable feast. On the other side of the sky, Tupelok and his family mourned. Some say they got so lonely that they came back to this side of the sky. Others say, if they came at all, it was to steal the light again. But Tupelok has never been able to take the light for as long as he did that first time. Whenever it disappears and returns again, whenever people watch the moon roll into the sky among the bits of sun that are the stars, they think of Raven. And whenever people hear a baby crying, they remember Raven's trick on Tupelok. And that is where Raven steals the light. That was a great story. Right? Um, also, you read a, 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 a line of that story 
um, before. The mm. the eyes adjusted to the moon thing. No? I thought Where? I thought I had read that before. It doesn't matter. Anyway. You can cut that part out. <laughs> but that is a great story. Right. But um that's all I have for uh, holiday and longest night traditions this time around. If you enjoyed this episode, we'll probably read another story or two on Patreon. Yes, Patreon.com yes. slash Midnight. <laughs> if you want to follow us on Instagram, Instagram.com slash DrearyMidnightPod. If you want to... Support the show without money. Please rate, review, subscribe. It really helps boost us in the algorithm. And if you have any light traditions that you or your family do, then email, email us. It's <laughs> dreary midnight podcast at gmail.com. We have we grew up in a time that is very um, light populated. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of light pollution. There's a lot of light pollution. So it's always nice to kind of go back to the roots and be like for the most the majority of human civilization yeah winter was a dark era yeah a a (laughs) dark era that you couldn't get out of without a lot of effort Um, that's why fire is so important yes (laughs) (laughs) and with all that said keep an eye out for tupelock don't let your eyes get gorged out and go to the mithraeum because it's kind of cool uh (laughs) and safe travels home on this dreary midnight's Good night. Good night.